Hi, my name is Riley Haas. I'm the host of No Cultural Authority, a raucous podcast about classic albums, and I'm also the co-host of the Backtrack, a hockey podcast about the Hall of Fame. This podcast you're about to listen to is based on my 2013 book, The Beatles Are the Greatest Rock Band of All Time, and I Can Prove It, which you can find online at Amazon and Smashwords. So, a primary reason for this podcast is that when I first wrote this book, there appeared to me a lot of people who questioned the place of Beatles in the music of the second half of the 20th century. Personally, I would put them on a very short list of important musicians, uh, especially post-1950. But for the 20th century as a whole, I can say, yeah, I think we can say these are the most important musicians in the music of the 20th century up through like 1980-ish. Louis Armstrong, Miles Davis, Duke Ellington, Bob Dylan, Schoenberg, Stockhausen, and the Beatles. There's probably one or two other people we could add to that. And then, of course, I, I say as of 1980, because frankly, I can't speak to hip hop at all. And so obviously, like, you know, there are some hip hop innovators in the, in the uh, 70s and 80s that like I know nothing about that I would think, given the prominence of hip hop in the 21st century, we'd have to include. So I would say, though, excluding hip hop, that's about it. Those are the most important musicians. Oh, James Brown. How did I leave out James Brown? Anyway, sorry. And I'm not arguing for a second that the Beatles were the most innovative band in the world, or uh, that they were entire time they were together, or that they were the first band to do all of these innovations, or that they were always the best. I've, I've admitted as we've gone along, they were not the first to innovate sometimes. But they were ubiquitous for almost all their existence. And while they were ubiquitous, they were the most innovative or among the most innovative popular musicians for the vast majority of their seven and a half years of releasing records. And they were the most influential overall because they had the greatest reach and because they were bold with that reach. So, you know, as I mentioned before about Frank Zappa and, and the Velvet Underground, those, those people might have done more, but nobody listened to them. So it's kind of moot. So I now want to talk about the pretenders to the throne. If you make a case for the Beatles among serious music fans as, as the most important rock band in history, someone is going to argue with you. And they are going to have another band that they're going to say, no, these people were another artist. And so I just want to like tick some of those off and be like, hey, listen, they, that doesn't make any sense. So okay. before we get to that, though, I just need to reemphasize. Music changed drastically between the autumn of 1962 when the Beatles released Love Me Do and April 1970, when Paul McCartney announced he was leaving the band. As I argued in the first episode, this brief period is when pop rock had its own splintering, as classical music had at the beginning of the 20th century, and as jazz did in the 1940s. If you listen to the top 40 in 1962, and again in 1970, and you can pick any week you want, it's like the music was made by a completely different group of people from totally different times. You know, any week, pick any week in those two years, and it's like it's it's like a quantum leap. And here's the thing: bands and artists who were not present at this splintering, this like drastic, drastic musical change from a very limited number of genres in 1962 to just literally anything under the sun in 1970, they can't claim this kind of influence. It's just the chronological fact. I I love the Clash, for example, but the Clash weren't involved in this at all. Mm -hmm. They were children or teenagers you know and just pick any number of bands post this period they didn't they can't have been influential like these bands of the 60s were because music had already fractured by this point popular music so i'm not going to deal with bands that emerged after 1966 
with one notable exception, depending on how you classify them, for the simple reason that everybody who came after 1966 had been hugely influenced by the Beatles already, but also because the fracturing had started to begin. I think you can say there's even an indirect influence in groups that weren't reacting to the Beatles in the sense that they were like going out of their way to not react to the Beatles. I mean, you had to react to the Beatles in some way. They were everywhere. It's just like they were unavoidable. Ubiquitous is the best word I can think of, but it doesn't fully do it justice. In 1962, recording executives wanted to find the next big thing that sounded like was on the radio. But by the late 60s, recording executives wanted to find the next big thing that was unique, that would be the new thing that would define the era next. And I, that's a huge qualitative change to me. So the first one, the most famous for a certain generation of fans that younger people will be utterly mystified by, I'm sure, is the Beatles versus the Beach Boys argument. And that is the idea that the Beach Boys and the Beatles traded records throughout the 1960s in some kind of competitive one-upsmanship that mm-hmm. revolutionized popular music. It's one of the great myths of American popular music criticism, especially music criticism written between the 60s and the 90s. I think it's really died out in the 21st century because people just don't care anymore. But certain generations really, really cared. And it is arguably just as dumb as the uh, Beatles versus Rolling Stones myth of British popular music criticism, which we are going to get to. It is based primarily on comments made by Brian Wilson, Paul McCartney, George Martin, and a couple, a couple of records made between 1965 and 1967, and a whole lot of wishful thinking by the American music press. The actual recordings made by the Beach Boys, I don't think, bear this out at all, this, this narrative. And I think that as long as you're not convinced that Brian Wilson is the greatest musician in the history of the world, you're really not going to buy the argument. Basically, the myth stems... Well, I'm going to make an assumption that the myth stems from the unconscious or at least unacknowledged annoyance and frustration of the American music establishment and I mean musicians, producers, label bosses, and music critics at the British invasion. Rock and roll was a very American thing. And then one day in 1964, it was a British thing instead. You know, all of a sudden, out of the blue in March 1964, there were all these British bands doing what Americans were good at, but better, both commercially and artistically. That was probably a very frustrating thing for everyone in the music establishment. Label bosses were searching for anyone to compete financially with the British acts. And, uh, you know, they were struggling. Uh, to give you some idea of uh, how crazy things were, the Guess Who, Canada's most famous rock band prior to uh, Rush, are called mm-hmm. the Guess Who for a reason. They're called the Guess Who because their label, Canadian this time, but the point remains, thought that they could pretend they were a secret British invasion band by calling them the Guess Who. Really? People, yes. That is 100% That true. is so ridiculous. Yeah. Because early on, prior to their actual hits, like their big hits, they were playing British Invasion pop music. So in the very early days, it was a way of, because they had different names. They were called like Chad Allen and the Impressions and the, I don't know, they were like, they had three different names. And they were rebranded as the Guess Who because they were playing such a British Invasion brand of rock and roll that their label was like, maybe we'll trick people to thinking they're British. That just British seems band. ridiculous. I agree. But okay. So, Brian Wilson had been making music for years before 1964. And he was a prodigy, right? He, he wasn't really that culturally significant in the U.S., though, until the British invasion happened. And 
he started writing more mature songs. Because initially, Brian Wilson was writing rock and roll, you know, pastiches and surf songs. Mm -hmm. Now, he was a wonderkind. He wrote a ton of early songs in an early age. In fact, he wrote many before the Beatles even had a record deal. But, you know, as I've said many times, those songs were about cars, cars, and girls on motorcycles and dancing. It took a little bit for him to really approach his maturity. He began producing Beach Boys records early on, but he didn't really do much at first. And then he started imitating a little uh, Phil Spector a little bit. Now, he did become obsessed with record production, and he notably stopped touring before the Beatles did to focus on record production. But then he heard Rubber Soul in 1965. And I should point out that this is halfway through the decade and after the Beatles had done much to change music themselves already. Certainly the myth stems from Rubber Soul and Brian Wilson. And that's why it's weird. Because, of course, what, much of what I talked about the Beatles pioneering happened before Rubber Soul. You know, we even talked about after the first two albums. If the Beatles had just broken up right then, they already had a pretty big impact on music. And then, of course, they invented a genre after that. Wilson has been quoted a number of times about talking how much, talking about how much he thinks of Rubber Soul, and also that he thought the Beatles were his antagonists. Now, anyone who has lived alone too much can tell you you lose a perspective when you don't go out. And yes. I think it's I think safe we've all to learned say, that lesson. Yes, it's safe to say that we should not necessarily listen to the ranting of a man who had like literally locked himself in his recording studio. Like just because he thought the Beatles were his antagonists and he thought rubber soul was a challenge to him. Doesn't mean it was, or that the Beatles were, you know, uh, were the Beatles aware of it? They were the most successful band in the world. And they had numerous people vying for their attention. Also it's worth noting. John Lennon was obsessed with Bob Dylan, not Brian Wilson. They were doing drugs. They were starting to listen to Indian music and music concrete of uh, Stockhausen and people like the Schoenberg. Um, Schoenberg's earlier than that, but did they imagine a rivalry? I've never heard any of them say they did. Paul McCartney and George Martin were extremely impressed with pet sounds. They both said that, which was apparently Brian Wilson's response to our soul. And it played as an influence on Sgt. Pepper. You can say, Sergeant Pepper is Paul McCartney's idea, and Paul McCartney loved Pet Sounds. But unlike the Beach Boys, Paul McCartney was not the Beatles. There were a whole lot of other things going on. For example, John Lennon was far more interested in Black American music than he was in the Beach Boys, as well as Bob Dylan. And it's also worth noting that the Beatles had finished Revolver when Pet Sounds came out. And Revolver is a more innovative and interesting record than Pet Sounds. So... Are we supposed to take the insecurities of Brian Wilson as, as the basis for this like fake rivalry? I don't think so. The case for mm -hmm. Pet Sounds as like the most important album in the 1960s stems from two things. Wilson's arrangements and his use of A-track recording technology. I think you can say his arrangements are very sophisticated for someone his age, just like the Beatles' arrangements are, but he is very much in the mold of Phil Spector, I think. People talk about Pet Sounds as containing pocket symphonies, and it's like it's absurd. Like they're not, they're just pop songs. They're really, really well constructed pop songs. He also had a ton of help. It's worth noting that Pet Sounds and other Beach Boys music was created with the help of the Wrecking Crew, the most experienced studio musicians in the pop music world, who had previously worked with Phil Spector. Literally, Brian Wilson would come in with a whole bunch of professional uh, musicians and tell them do this and do this. And they'd be like, okay, sure. And the Beatles were making 
their own music. They famously barely used session musicians until 1965, and even then, really until 1966. So the other main thrust of this claim is that Brian Wilson is a recording pioneer. A-track had only been sporadically used in the United States since the late 50s. It was obviously available. As I said, the Beatles created their music initially on two-track and four-track well into the late 60s. They had less to work with. The thing is, Brian Wilson used the majority of his A-tracks for vocal overdubs, which is fine, but that's what he did. You know, if you, if you listen to Pet Sounds or earlier stuff, it's, it's mostly vocal overdubs. You know, there's, there's on Pet Sounds, there's often the Wrecking Crew is like the live track, and then there's seven, six or seven vocal tracks, which is fine. I'm not saying it's not no. fine, but it's like, it's one thing. <laughs> one engineer who participated in Pet Sounds will tell you that no one has ever done anything like Brian Wilson did in history. I think that's a humble brag to use an old now out of uh, currency term. This guy's basically saying that Brian Wilson did this incredible thing. He just happens to have been involved in it. Isn't that nice? But like, I'm not sure what like taking vocal drugs overdubs to this extreme tells us beyond they did that. And it sounds good. You know, Queen did this as well. And it sounds really crazy. And no one makes as big a, a deal about what Queen did. I do think Pet Sounds is a kind of remarkable recording feat in terms of the vocal overdubs, but that's it to me. I also think it's, you know, catchy, but it's also, it's notable it's also not a rock album, which is fine. Again, it's a pop album, but people will talk about it as one of the great rock albums of all time. And like, I think there's like two electric guitars over here, which is, mm-hmm. I'm picking at things. That's the point that's of this That's what you argument. do though. Yeah. I have made the case for Revolver as one of the most important albums in history. Here, there, and everywhere from that album amply demonstrates that Paul McCartney was a fan of and aware of the Beatles. But the Beatles yeah. were into much, much more than just the Beach Boys. Sorry, I said Paul McCartney was a fan of the Beatles, not the Beach Boys, but he was a fan of the Beach Boys. And the thing is, the influence of the Beatles reaches far beyond uh, the Beach Boys because the Beatles did more stuff in more genres. You know, they didn't just stick to yeah. a genre, of, or in the case of the Beach Boys, one genre of music, surf rock, and then a different genre of music later, pop. The Beatles put forward contrasting styles and even genres on the same record, and they appealed to more people. They weren't also the dominant uh, focus of one ego, even when Paul McCartney was at his most dominant. You know, Pet Sounds contains early samples, which are very, very impressive, but they were also very few and at the end of the album and not aggressively mixed in. Revolver contains tons of samples and all sorts of other innovations, and they're in your face. Now, I do want to say that I think Good Vibrations is one of the great singles of all time in a landmark in popular music history. It is the premiere of the theremin on a record, but it is also basically a suite of song fragments as a single, which has never been done before. And I think that's, you know, good for him. Um, the idea that it is a response to Revolver is kind of hilarious. It's a song. It's not an album. But even if we pretend that's true, and then Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane is a response to Good Vibrations, first of all, I don't see that at all. They're not related. But secondly, is, is this competition that people want to get in, like saying that you know Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane are, are somehow like inferior to Good Vibrations? Like It strikes me as like a weird argument to be making. And all, I really don't see the inspiration. I don't even uh, think of them as related, really. I mean, except for in the chronological history of like innovative singles to me strawberry fields sounds like the next step from tomorrow never notes rather than a response to good vibrations 
Some people have said that Revolver killed Smile, the follow-up to Pet Sounds, or that Strawberry Fields even killed Smile. And then, of course, Sgt. Pepper happened, and he had a breakdown. This is the legend. Yeah. And, and, and you can, of course, see the Americans saying, ah, oh, those damn foreigners destroying pure American musicians, you know. So even if this is an argument that's real, one of the participants conceded in 1967, years before the Beatles stopped recording. Like, what are we talking about? I, there are people who believe Smile would have won up the Beatles yet again. And I, I just, I don't believe it. Not only that, but Wilson has gone and done them a disservice because, of course, Brian Wilson went and released his own version of Smile now. And now we can listen to it and see that it wouldn't have. It's just, you know, how we feel like the best thing in a horror movie is like not seeing the bad guy, right? You're scared yeah. of the, the unknown. The idea. Yeah. There's no, you, there's no way you'll ever make it as scary as you yeah. make it in your head. I think the same thing is true of like fantasy what if albums, lost albums. People could say about Smile, well, oh, yeah. Smile would have been 100%. the greatest album ever made if he only finished it. I used to believe that about the Who album Lifehouse that never came out. I used to think that would have been the greatest album ever if only Pete Townsend had finished it. But then Smile was released and now we can listen to Smile and see that it isn't the greatest album of all time. I'm ranting about this because the number of times I've read, read music criticism written anytime between the 1970s and then and especially in the 1990s when this a flurry of bands influenced by the beach boys caused this to resurge i've read so many things claiming that this was a thing that there was a battle between the two groups and that it was on equal footing a i don't think there was a battle between the two groups and b i don't think there's even it's even close in terms of some idea of equal footing in terms of the influence they had and of course c like i said Brian Wilson like it supposedly admits to essentially giving up. <laughs> the whole thing is dumb. We shouldn't talk about it. All right. That rant over. You sure? Next yes, next much shorter one. This no one cares about this next one, but I'm bringing it up anyway, and that is the birds. The birds have a fairly good case as one of the most influential bands of the 1960s and therefore pop rock history. You can claim that the birds were a major part of three musical revolutions, two of which the Beatles were a part of. And so that's, you know, that's a pretty big deal. The birds were part of the folk rock revolution. Now the Beatles were playing folk rock before the birds, but the birds helped define folk rock arguably much better than the Beatles. Their early records are like the epitome of folk rock, you know, especially Mr. Tambourine Man and Turn, Turn, Turn. We don't really remember it, but folk rock was a really big thing for back in the 60s. And of course, anything Jangle ever since has been influenced by this. Also, the Birds were the first band to properly record psychedelic music. And again, apologies to people who think the Yardbirds got there first, but I invite you to listen to the two singles, as I said when we were talking about it before, and decide which one is more close to what you think of psychedelic music. I think you'll see it's the Bird song. Eight Miles High is arguably the first ever single that recording. They did it before the Beatles did. I think you can say that fairly definitively. The Beatles, sorry, the Birds ushered in the psychedelic era before the Birds did. Finally, the Birds were not the first country rock band. That would be the International Submarine Band. But they were the first mainstream country rock band in the summer of 1968. And they started, for what it's worth, the country pop boom of the 1970s. And they did this at a time when everyone was listening to psychedelic music. The Beatles sort of followed them through the door a little bit, though they never really quite recorded country rock. But again, they were behind the birds. So 
first of all, you can't claim that the Beach Boys cannot claim these innovations like the birds can. Mm-hmm. So I do think the birds case is stronger. But of course, Brian Wilson was a much better songwriter than any of the birds. One of the reasons the birds are not remembered as well is because the birds lacked really strong songs. Listen to any of their albums, and like there's a reason they're not as well remembered. Their songs just aren't as good as the Beatles songs or the the Beach Boys songs. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna say, like, I have a hard time buying the birds being as influential as the Beatles just because of the amount of reach that they had. Yeah. And and the other thing, of course, is that the Beatles had put out three albums before the birds even formed four albums before the birds released their first song and yeah. invented the genre of the, the birds that made the birds famous. So it was more just like, that's an argument that nobody ever makes. I entertained it. I don't believe it, but it's an argument I think you can make more strongly than the beach boys argument, despite the fact that the beach boys argument is the one people make. Got so it. next we have Bob Dylan and comparing the Beatles to Bob Dylan is a bit like comparing say, a sketch comedy troupe to a screenwriter. The Beatles' lyrical ingenuity and influence pale in comparison to Bob Dylan, even if they embraced Bob Dylan's innovations earlier than virtually anybody else. For me, the Beatles' innovations rest far more on their music, their choice of chords, their appropriation and deconstruction of traditional song structures and conventions, their use of non-traditional instruments, their use of the studio as instrument. Bob Dylan didn't do much of that stuff. Rather, he brought poetry, and other ideas into popular music lyrics where they had barely existed before. Until Bob Dylan began singing non-protest folk songs, poetry had usually existed in what is called the art song. An art song is a song written by a romantic composer for performance by a singer with accompaniment, usually piano, but sometimes a string quartet or something like that. The process was basically find a poem, set it to music for the singer and piano player, and that's it. You could say that poetic devices had been used in lyrics to some extent, and popular songs, but there wasn't any kind of really attempt at serious poetry, especially modernist poetry. Uh, on the other side of things, you had folk songs using extremely primitive poetic devices to convey songs about problems, actual real-world problems, and real issues. The Billie Holiday's performance of Strange Fruit is one of the few examples of a folk song crossing over into another genre. Really, it didn't happen. So you have these two different worlds, three different worlds, if you include the leader of romantic art music. So first, Bob Dylan was a great protest singer and songwriter. He refined the folk protest song, bringing in a greater awareness of modern poetry, a willingness to reuse old songs to his own ends, and, you know, basically using old melodies and rewriting lyrics completely. Then, with another side of Bob Dylan, he brought unconventional lyrics drawn from 19th and 20th century poetry into folk music, basically for the first time. The album is a landmark of folk music because it breaks from basically every folk music lyrical convention in existence. The lyrics are extremely idiosyncratic, even for art songs, and they set a new standard for pop, what was possible in English language lyrics, which is anything. And then he went electric, and he brought those lyrics to a rock audience for the first time, breaking down numerous lyrical conventions in rock music and pop music in one fell swoop. Of course, the Beatles and other people have been doing this for some time, but no one was as sophisticated as Dylan in his wordplay. I think it's fairly safe to say that once he went electric, Dylan's lyrics were pretty much unparalleled in music popular music anyway, at least for a few years. Eventually it had imitators and followers and, you know, but, and you can, you can probably find numerous songwriters now who can claim some level of lyrical sophistication like Bob Dylan's, but that was not true in 1965. But by claiming the Beatles are greater than Bob Dylan, I'm not trying to downplay any of this. I think 
Bob Dylan is the most important English language lyricist of the 20th century, and I don't think it's even close. I would say, if I wanted to be like cautious, I'd say second half, but honestly, I think it's probably the 20th century. I just, I don't know early 20th century popular song well enough to say that definitively, but I'm pretty sure. I think his influence on lyrics is incalculable, but it's very, very different than the Beatles, and it's limited primarily to lyric writing, which is not where the Beatles' influence lies. So, up next, we have Quentin Tarantino's favorite argument, that the Beatles were somehow competing against Elvis Presley and that Elvis is better. What? You've never heard this? No. Yeah. How did I not hear this from Quentin Tarantino? Well, it's not just him, but he's the one who popularized it in the mid-90s. And I apologize to anyone who has never heard this before. And it's like, what are you talking about, Riley? Because in the 90s, it was a thing. It isn't anymore, I don't think. Yeah. Um, I have never been an Elvis fan, I should say. But I've also never thought of these two in an opposition until the stupid uh, dialogue in Pulp Fiction that brought this to everyone's attention. Mm. Beatles were Elvis fans. And there were Elvis fans in part because Elvis was basically from another era of music. Elvis was one of the pioneers of rock and roll, whereas the Beatles were part of a whole new era of music making. And comparing them doesn't make much sense. It seems unfair to hold Elvis to the standards of the Beatles, just like it would be unfair to to hold the Beatles to the production standards of, say, U2 or some alternative rock band. It's just bizarre. Why would you do that? I have more power in the laptop sitting on my desk right now than they probably had at Abbey Road the entire yes. time they were recording yes. there. And Abs- that's, and absolutely. Actually, I should probably preface that saying, I probably have more power on the cell phone that we're doing this Zoom through yes. than I do, than they do than they did at Abbey Road. I'm pretty sure you do. Yeah. Elvis's pop cultural impact is huge in the United States, bigger than the Beatles, perhaps, or at least it was earlier when I wrote this, or maybe even before that, when I was growing up. So Americans are sometimes tempted to think of Elvis' impact on, say, the lonelier people in society, the people who show up at those conventions, and that kind of thing, as as some kind of statement of his broad musical importance. I don't think that's exactly accurate. I think just because there's Elvis has left the building, which is a saying people don't say anymore, but was said for years, and just because there are like hundreds of thousands of Elvis impersonators, doesn't necessarily mean that Elvis had the same impact the Beatles did, or vice versa. I used to work with an Elvis impersonator. Oh, there one you of go. my jobs. Yep, he was uh, quite famous locally. And not Rory Allen, who is the most known Saskatchewan uh, okay. Elvis impersonator. Because we have so many that there's a most known Elvis impersonator. That's quite funny. That's quite God funny. bless Saskatchewan. Yeah. What Elvis did for music was he acted as a messenger. He was the first white person to fully fuse the disparate elements of rock and roll together. Blues with a backbeat, country swing, and gospel. Bill Haley, who had earlier hits, had more country swing in him than Elvis did. And also was much more interested in not scaring your parents than Elvis was. But the version of rock and roll Elvis performed was already being done by numerous Black Americans before him, some of whom already had hits on the quote-unquote race charts. So this was only new to white people. He was basically, and I'm joking a little bit here, he was the Eminem of the Beastie Boys of rock and roll for anybody who's younger. I mean, like it, I don't think it's I don't think it's that that that's that much of a joke. Yeah. Really, because like yeah, it's a half it's joke. a bit of a joke, but there's a, there's enough truth in there that it can be seen as a mostly yes. true statement because like what did because I mean like yeah, there were there were definitely white rappers before Eminem made it big. The Beastie Boys had their first ever number one hip-hop album. 
Yeah. I mean, everyone loved Vanilla Ice, right? Oh, yeah. Like top shelf. But I mean, they were both, I guess, trail, Trailblazer is not the right word, but they were both probably the ones who brought a more marginalized music to white suburbia. Yeah, absolutely. And Elvis 100% did that with rock and roll. Yes. Or elements of rock and roll. Yeah. And, and, and he also was a really good dancer. And, and some people think that's really, really important. But I've always, you know, yeah. the people who were present, sure, it was really important because they were scandalized or turned on or whatever. But, like, I've always thought that was a lame cop-out in this argument. It's like, yeah, he was a great dancer. Okay. We're talking about music on record. You listen to it. Anyway, he was a great interpretive artist. He had a great voice, and he was a dynamic performer. But he rarely wrote his own material, and he allowed his musical uh, avenues, at least in part, to be dictated by marketing concerns, specifically by those of his manager. He put out gospel recordings, for example, to make money. Maybe he enjoyed it, but he did it because there was a market for it. He was the original white genre matter, and he combined multiple popular musics into rockabilly and rock and roll, but he also recorded straight up gospel and country and later pop albums to appeal to other audiences instead of doing what the Beatles did, which was to mix all of them together in a great mounting pot. He did a little bit of that, but he didn't do that with his pop and country and gospel stuff. He didn't evolve in the way that the Beatles did. No. Like jazz musicians and classical composers are supposed to. That's something the Beatles brought to rock and roll. Elvis did not do that. The music we live in now is more of a result of what the Beatles did than what Elvis did. Elvis lived within defined musical boundaries and catered to niche markets. That's what the Beatles did within their records, not on separate records. Elvis won Grammys for other genres, but never for rock and roll. Not that Grammys are any indication of artists' abilities or impact or anything like that, but that's interesting. Rock and roll was his thing in the early days, but once the machine was running, there were markets to satisfy, most of whom were uncomfortable with rock and roll. He has a few classic rock and roll songs at the beginning of his career, and then a chunk of his hits are actually much more in the pop space, especially after he came back from his army service. I've always thought it was ridiculous to call this man the king of rock and roll, given the relative lack of rock and roll hits. I always, I'm partial to Chuck Berry. Personally, I've always been partial to Chuck Berry. But also Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richard. None, I'm not saying any of them are necessarily superior. I just think they might have been a little more deserving of the Appalachian. You could also go with Carl Perkins, though he's less famous. The thing is, Little Richard seemed possibly like he was gay. Chuck Berry was a black man who uh, had some problems with the law. He, of course, he was convicted for white slavery by uh, transporting a a minor over state lines. And then later, many years later, he was also convicted of uh, filming women while they pee. And Jerry Lewis... Jerry Lee Lewis was uh, unpredictable and you could argue an incestuous child molester. And later he murdered his wife, probably. So none of these I people mean, were particularly great. Yeah. I mean, Little Richard being the, the best of them by a long shot. So it's easy to understand now why Elvis was so much more acceptable than the rest of these people. Carl Perkins, I don't know that Carl Perkins did anything, did, ever did anything bad, but he was also not charismatic. <laughs> So, um, in the in the way that these guys were, but I'm just talking right now about Elvis's immediate contemporaries, uh, and that's not 
to talk about any of the many um, Black American musicians before Elvis who wrote, who quote unquote, wrote their own material in the sense that blues people wrote their own material, i.e. like Bob Dylan, they would take a melody, yeah. add new music, lyrics. But Elvis himself has, has said in interviews when early on, when people would say, where did this come from? And say, I didn't invent it. You know, it, it, it's been around long before me. So I think to compare the Beatles to a man whose status as the greatest early rock and roll musician is actually in a little bit of doubt. Seems kind of insane. If anyone deserves the crown of king of rock and roll, personally, I think it's Chuck Berry. And I've never heard anyone saying the Beatles are less important than Chuck Berry. I'm just saying. I have not heard people make that claim. I think what the Beatles did is much broader than what Elvis did. But if you're old enough, obviously Elvis made a bigger impact on your life, and that's totally fine. I just think the impact on music that the Beatles had has just been far, far broader. Again, for the same reasons I said before, that they were there at the splintering, at the creation of pop rock, and then it's falling apart, and Elvis is before that even happened. And like I said, also with catered to niche arguments. I've got a really silly one now that I'll be very brief about, and that is the Beatles versus the Kinks, which is, it's really not very big. Basically, very briefly, in the summer of 1964, the Kinks were the loudest rock band on the planet. They released You Really Got Me. They popularized the power chord and helped associate rock music with power chords. They did that. The Beatles didn't do that. But they, of course, did this after the Beatles had been recording music for nearly two years and releasing it. And the Kinks' earliest music is very much British invasion rock and roll, heavier than the Beatles, but very much influenced by the Beatles. Eventually, Ray Davies is merged as one of the preeminent English pop rock songwriters writing rock opera after rock opera after rock opera and or, or song settle, whatever you want to call them. But it took him a while to get there. And it was actually the late 60s before he started writing all his acclaimed song cycles. It's really hard to imagine that he wasn't influenced by the Beatles, particularly Paul McCartney's attempts at reviving pre-rock and roll British popular music, which is exactly what Ray Davies was doing in the late 60s and early 70s. Certainly McCartney never conceived of anything on the magnitude of Ray Davies' various song cycles, but there's that similar nostalgia, I think. And uh, it's just the idea that like popularizing the power chord and you know writing a whole bunch of songs about old England would somehow make them more important strikes me as fanciful. I don't know anyone's making this claim, but you know, I figured I'd take it off anyway. So up next, we come to the other really, really famous one, the Beatles versus the Rolling Stones. And it's an industry-created myth that doesn't hold any water. In this case, it might have been traced back to the Rolling Stones manager, Andrew Lou Goldblum, who tried to market the Stones as the anti-Beatles. He, uh, of course, made them grow their hair longer, and they wore leather mm-hmm. jackets, which the Beatles had worn prior to getting a makeover mm. by their own manager. Yes. As I pointed out earlier, Lemmy famously said that if you wanted to go see a wild rock show in the early 60s, you went to see the Beatles, not the Rolling Stones. So, And Lemmy is an authority on that kind of thing. The early Rolling Stones releases were some of the most raucous rock and roll on record. But like I said, let me said, the Beatles were more raucous, at least live. So anyway, Oldham gave the Stones longer hair and different jackets. And there was this idea that the Rolling Stones were like hipper than the Beatles. They used to swear in front of their audiences. You know, they were, they were, both bands were, well, the Beatles swore before their, in front of their audiences before they made it big. The Rolling Stones continued to do so. The Beatles used drugs and hid the fact that they used drugs. The Rolling Stones used drugs and let people know they used drugs. <laughs> and this was all like 
marketing shit, at least in part, to try and so make the Rolling Stones the, your choice if you didn't like Beatlemania. So aside from the fact that it's a marketing employee, there's a lot that makes this claim silly. The Rolling Stones, for most of their career, remained within a specific range of music. Early on, it was rhythm and blues, and to a lesser extent, traditional English folk, which they peppered in there here and there. And then, uh, you know, they very, very briefly broke away from this first in, uh, and, and yeah, and later rock and roll, I should say. But they very briefly broke away from this. First in the mid-60s when they recorded a couple of poppy records and eventually a full-on psychedelic record, completely imitating the Beatles on both of them. I mean, I'm a fan, not so much of uh, their Satanic Majesty's request, which is wacky and weird and interesting, but also not great, but very imitative of both the Beatles and Frank Zappa. But of like Between the Buttons, the previous record is, you know, it's good, but it's like pure, like, Beatles-y pop rock. And like the Beatles have been doing this for like five years. And then, of course, infamously in the uh, late 70s and early 80s, the uh, Rolling Stones briefly flirted with disco and new wave. Other, other than that, they've never strayed from their formula. So obviously their impact isn't as great because they didn't touch as many genres. Also because of the music they made, they were far less inclined to make drastic innovations in the street. The stuff they did during their most experimental era which is a cup of coffee in their history as a band, was stuff yeah. the Beatles and Zappa had already done and done better. The only time the Rolling Stones ever won up the Beatles in musical innovation is when they used a Moog synthesizer on their Sonic Majesty's request two years or a year and a half at least before the Beatles did. So they got them there. But you know who else beat the Beatles to using the Moog synthesizer? The Monkees did. So who cares? Anyway... There are millions of people who prefer the Rolling Stones to the Beatles, and that's absolutely fine. There are many people who prefer lots of bands to the Beatles. That's not really the point. The point is there's no real standard by which to claim the Rolling Stones were more influential on mm -hmm. music unless you go by longevity, because, of course, they're still together. Okay? Listen, I, I love the Rolling Stones. Exile on Main Street, to me, is the greatest rock and roll album of all time. But the idea that they are anywhere near as influential as the Beatles is preposterous. So... Penultimately, no, not quite penultimately, basically penultimately, we have the Velvet Underground. You could argue the Velvets said to have a bit of a claim to compete with the Beatles. They had an incalculable effect on rock music of the last quarter of the 20th century, and obviously continuing until the present day. By focusing on a primitive version of garage rock with a revolutionary and primitive style of rhythm guitar playing, they essentially gave birth to everything that has since been dubbed punk. Punk rock, punk pop, dance punk, post-punk, new wave, etc. And their combination of this music with the most recent developments in high art music, i.e. minimalism, a genre that neither the Beatles nor Frank Zappa knew about, they influenced everything we now label noise. Noise music, noise rock, shoegaze, all sorts of other things. But the Velvets' influence is rather limited to a few specific aesthetics, albeit spread across many genres, in a way that the Beatles' influence is not. Moreover, even though the Velvets were hardly influenced by the Beatles, Lou Reed was far more influenced by Bob Dylan, they came into existence in a world dominated by the Beatles. The mixing of art and rock had become acceptable because of the Beatles and their followers, and having commercial, uh, because the Beatles had been commercially successful with this mixture. So the willingness of record labels to sign and produce uncategorizable and unique bands was born out of a desire to find the next Beatles. You could argue that much of what the Velvets did was in opposition to bands like the Beatles, even if they were at bottom doing something actually kind of similar in terms of at least combining 
rock and roll and high art music. But the Velvet's influence is limited in other ways. They are famous for selling very few records. And right there is where the crux of why the Beatles were far more influential. The Beatles sold records the Velvet Underground did not. Though they did so, it's worth noting they sold more records than the legend has it. Their albums actually charted. And the myth, of course, is they sold like 200 albums. And that's, you know, you don't chart when you sell 200 albums. The Beatles were ubiquitous. They were on radio, they were at the movies, they were on TV, they were at home in people's recollections. In the pre-internet age, it was harder to find out about new bands. You could listen to the radio, you could read music magazines, you could listen to your parents' and friends' record collections. The odds of you finding the Beatles in one of those sources, as compared to the Velvet Underground, were staggering. If you knew about the Velvet Underground before university, and especially before the internet, you knew about it from uh, lucking into reading one of the few music magazines that pay them any mind or because of an older sibling or friend or you read cool it friends. Movie. Yeah. That's that was it. Me. It was cool friends. Yeah. And that's it. Uh, before the internet, especially before punk, it's kind of hard to know about the velvet underground without being an absolute music obsessive. Whereas you couldn't not know about the Beatles. So whereas the Kings had a brief claim to being the rockiest British invasion band, the who took that title and they held it well after the British invasion ended. I mean, the who are a bit of an institution right now that doesn't look very good. Uh, if they're even mm-hmm. still record, uh, performing, I think they are almost as much in some ways as the Long Stones. But at one point, they were known as what were called mods. The mods were a particular stylish group listening to a loud version of rock and roll, which the Who called maximum R&B. It was loud and it was confessional. The Who were early pioneers in breaking certain taboos. They were loud. They were raucous on stage, though they actually accidentally started destroying their instruments. It wasn't a thing they did on purpose. They did it once and they're like, hey, people like this. We'll keep doing it. They were more innovative in their use of feedback than the Beatles were. They used it in a solo rather than very briefly at the beginning of a song. But these innovations were conducted in a world dominated the Beatles, by the Beatles. The Who, like the Kings and the Stones, had to measure themselves by the Beatles and contrast themselves with the Beatles. And they went about doing this in the same manner as their peers. They tried to make themselves seem more threatening. Although you could argue Pete Townsend soon developed into one of England's preeminent songwriters, along with Ray Davies, his initial songs were highly influenced by John Lennon and perhaps even George Harrison's confessional writing. Now, Pete Townsend's first song cycle actually predates Paul McCartney's earliest attempts at this and contains an actual narrative thrust, unlike Sgt. Pepper, though it was released after, I think. I can't remember. Um, No, no, it was released before, actually. Um, So in that sense, The Who did break a little bit of new territory. But of course, this is a band that like premiered a couple of years in the Beatles' career, and that's really their only innovation is like helping to invent the rock opera, their only real innovation, unless you count like heavy use of acoustic guitar on Tommy or something like that. So lastly, the, the guy who, who might arguably have some kind of claim to being as influential subtly as the Beatles is Frank Zappa, probably the most Correct. innovative rock musician in the 1960s. In addition to the creation of art rock and its associated genres, avant or experimental rock and prog rock and their subgenres. He introduced classical music into rock music before the Beatles did. And he completely, although temporarily embraced the recording studio possibilities inherent in music concrete. He was also one of the earliest rock musicians to get into jazz. With the impossible exception of the Beatles Revolution Number no. 9 or the Velvet Underground Sister Ray, no rock music was more daring during the late 60s than Zappa's music. However, this has been to Zappa's detriment because you may have never heard of Frank Zappa. It's quite possible. Or you've never heard music by Frank Zappa, but heard his name. He yeah. was not particularly commercially successful. 
and multiple music critics over the years have accused him of actually hating rock music as if rock music were somehow distinct from the music Zappa made. Most people were not clearly influenced by Frank Zappa until much later in the 1990s. I think of Mr. Bungle, but there were a bunch of other bands. But since there were no obvious uh, Zappa followers until 1991, like obvious, obvious followers, does a huge injustice to his influence. As the Beatles did, Zappa changed the way people uh, thought about using the recording studio. Perhaps more than the Beatles themselves, Zappa changed what instruments were allowed in rock performances. As much as the Beatles, perhaps more, Zappa changed what was possible in rock music, namely anything. I have argued earlier that the White Album broke the remaining boundaries in rock music. It did do this, but it did this for people who hadn't heard Absolutely Free or were only in for the money. Two Frank Zappa albums, but with the mothers of a mention. And that was most people, but still. These albums stand as perhaps the most path-breaking rock albums of all time. They are utterly impossible to imagine the rock music of years or even months earlier. But the Beatles had the radio, and the Beatles had clear followers, the Birds, the Kinks, the Who, and numerous less known acts who further popularized what they were doing. Zappa barely got on the radio at the stage. He had a couple of minor hits, all notable for being the least strange things he recorded with the Mothers at this time. And as with the Velvet Underground, prior to the internet, you had to be a huge music nerd to be familiar with much of Zappa outside of 70s radio hits. Though these songs do contain traces of convention-destroying ideas, they're basically the pop version of his ideas. If you've only ever heard Montana or Don't Eat the Yellow Snow, you have only the faintest idea of the kind of wacky thing Frank Zappa was doing in the 60s. That is, yeah, I would agree with that. Because my introduction to Zappa was Yellow Snow in high school, I think. Yeah. And like getting beyond like a Frank Zappa's greatest hit CD definitely was not the easiest thing to do. Yeah. But um, yeah, I also definitely had a much different experience with music at a young age than probably most people did. Yes. I mean... You had to have in order to encounter yeah. him. I encountered him in, in high school as well through a greatest hits thing that I only found because I was reading too much music criticism on the internet and someone mentioned Zappa a bunch of times. I'm like, I actually guess I'd find out. Walked in a record store, bought uh, Strictly Commercial, which is like not a good introduction to Frank Zappa's music because it's just his greatest hits. And like, honestly, he didn't really have any. Yeah. <laughs> that many, no, so. I, I mean, super fun album. Yeah. Like, I, I really like that album because that got me started on what Frank Zapp was and so on and so forth. But like, for me, it was being a theater kid who worked yeah. at a punk club with all kinds of bands and musicians coming through. And you just, you picked up what the cool stuff was. Yeah, absolutely. And that's how you would have had to do it. And, and we both had the internet to help, right? In a way that. Yeah. Know, I mean, well, I mean, does. the internet was tough then to yeah. do anything. That's true. But I mean, I had, at least for me, I had internet for information, if not music. Yeah. In, yeah information you, about what music to try and buy, you know, or, or get from other people. Yeah. And, you know, this is like, you know, you can, you can pick a few bands in the 60s. Like the Beatles were obviously influenced by Zappa. I mentioned before uh, their Satanic Majesty's request, the Rolling Stones album is influenced by Zappa. The Soft Machine's second album, Volume 2, creatively titled Volume 2, is influenced by Zappa. But there wasn't a lot, and it was like all more commercial versions of this stuff. And until you get the like really crazy avant rock, some people have called rock against rock, which is a terrible name of the 90s and aughts, you didn't really get people following him really directly. And 
So people weren't really that aware except for a few radio hits. And so much like with the Velvet Underground, people listened to everything the Beatles put out. You know, Zappa's big hit of the 60s, which wasn't much of a big hit, Trouble Every Day, is a folk rock protest song that sounds nothing like the rest of the stuff on the album it came from. Yeah. So if you heard Trouble Every Day and that's it, you have You're no in trouble idea. every day. Yeah, you're just like, you have no clue. And so once again, as with, with the other band that I think has at least some argument here, which is the Velvet Underground, they just, he wasn't listened to by enough people for any kind of taste. And so that is my attempt to lay out the main contenders as to who, who might have, you know, argued, someone might be able to argue <laughs> for being more influential. And I don't think any of them hold up. Of course, I'm always open to counter arguments, but I just think there's no, the, yeah, no, the reach of the Beatles is just so vast. It's, it's not even comparable to these people. I'd also like to just point out, again, much to my annoyance and chagrin, I am angry that I'm starting to agree with you on this whole argument that you're making. <laughs> it frustrates me to no end. Well, I'm glad to hear it. <laughs>